This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. We've been away for a few weeks, but we're back ahead of the new season to discuss the topics affecting Liverpool FC away from what happens on the pitch. This week, we're focusing on financial fair play. Is it fit for purpose right now? And how is it going to be tested by some of the summer business? We'll be discussing what it means to Liverpool and their rivals moving forward. Joining us to provide his insight is Dr. Dan Plumley, a sport finance lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University and a man with a keen interest in FFP, who's authored many papers on the subject. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dave. I mean, this is a, a, a subject which you're, you're, you're well versed in. I know we, we've spoken in the past um, about FFP and um, it's many kind of variations and, and how it, it has struggled to be implemented um, in, in football uh, to the degree that, that kind of UEFA had in mind at the start, I think. I mean, where are we at presently with FFP? I mean, because there are many who say it simply hasn't been, been fit for purpose for some time. Yeah, I think that that's part of the problem. So, you know, a lot of the research that I've done in this space would would suggest similar. I, I've termed it as what we would call unintended consequences of, of FFP. And what I mean by that in, in simple terms is it, it has good intentions at its heart. It, it came about in 2011. We know it was about financial sustainability and getting clubs to spend within their means. Everybody that's you know has an interest in, in financial matters would agree that that's a good way for a business to run. And, and we know that these clubs at the elite end are businesses. Um, so it had good intentions and it has brought about some financial sustainability in the industry if you track that back to 2011 and what was happening before then. But the other problem that it's had and, and something that, that I've done a lot of research into is, is the impact that it's had on competition on the pitch. And this thing around competitive balance of leagues and how close teams are together and who can win the titles and qualify for Champions League, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And what we find in that is that it's since FFP, those leagues competitions have been dominated by a select number of clubs. And, and we could argue that's always been the case throughout history, but this is becoming more prevalent now in a post-FFP era. And I think when you look at some of the metrics of you know, a break-even principle and spending within your means and, and some of the um, the kind of loopholes in the regulation that allow clubs to push the boundaries, I think that's a kind of natural consequence and, and nobody's saying that that happened deliberately, but that's the unintended consequence of it. So, yeah, I think there's, that's what we've seen over time. And of course, you, you're only measuring these things once the events have happened. So I think now we've got kind of, you know, 10 years post-FFP and we probably need to be looking at at having a rethink about how those regulations look and operate at a time where the industry has continued to grow. Uh, and of course, the, the most recent thing that we probably need to cover, uh, which I'm sure we will, is, is what's happening with FFP right now, because it, it's a different uh, reporting structure for these two years that have been impacted by COVID. I mean, the, that's one of the things, that the, the headline figures that um, came out, uh, there's a report across European football how, how it looked. I mean, obviously, there's billions been lost. Um, but FFP was pointed to as something which helped um, stop the bleeding a little bit, I suppose, in terms of um, how, how it's worked over the past 10 years. But as you touched on before, if you are spending, um, if it's your wages to ratio, to, you know, to, to revenue turnover, um, if, if you are... Uh, Manchester City or Liverpool or Manchester United, then um, it, the competitive balance is affected because ultimately it pulls pulls the drawbridge up from uh, from those beneath you, as as kind of Everton 
uh, at risk of kind of falling foul of those um, FFP rules themselves moving forward as they try and bridge that gap. So um, that's one of the main issues I suppose UEFA will be, be trying to address. Yeah, of course, it stands to reason, doesn't it? You know, even under a, a break-even principle, which is is what FFP is when you strip it back, clubs that earn more can spend more. Um, and that's kind of, again, some of the, you know, the nature of what FFP has, has, has done. It has promoted financial sustainability in part, but it's also meant that the bigger clubs have kept their stranglehold on on the position that they had and have actually increased that because, as, as you know, as you quite rightly say, how do you bridge that gap? You have to spend and invest to bridge that gap. And if if the restriction, if the regulation doesn't allow you to do that or up to a certain degree, then that gap will only ever get wider. Um, and certainly that's what we've seen over the last few years. That is dominated, as you say, by clubs that compete in the Champions League, because that's an extra, you know, for the English clubs, it's it's fifty million pounds minimum if you get to the, you know, that's the, the ticket to getting into the Champions League. And if you get to the final, it can be upwards of 100 million. And, and you have that money every year that the clubs that can't that don't can't get into the Champions League don't have. And the only way they get there is to spend. And, and by spending, they might breach FFP and the wage issues and things like that. And of course, the interesting thing with the wages to turnover mm. ratio is it that's something that's not policed directly within FFP. It's a it's a recommended ratio. UEFA say it shouldn't be more than 70 percent of turnover. Um, but it's not kind of it's sort of soft agreement that the clubs sign up to rather than being anything that is actually monitored in in those regulations so yeah i think that goes back to what we were talking about before with the previous question there's there's just inconsistencies in the in the regulations still and and you expect that and regulations evolve over time um of course but i think you know now is a time that we should be probably looking at at rethinking these again and and especially as you say with the lost revenues during the pandemic UEFA have actually come out and and paused FFP or or they've rolled 2020 and 2021 together to make a bigger reporting period because they appreciate that the clubs have have suffered loss in revenue and if you suffer a loss in revenue but you still got the cost to pay then you are going to fall foul of these regulations under a break-even principle. That um, while UEFA obviously have extended that um, period, that reporting period to, to aid clubs. I mean, ultimately, I suppose it, it does provide some kind of loophole for uh, the likes of, I mean, PSG, we've seen they've gone on a, a huge, um, uh, well, they've gone on a concerted spending spree this summer. It's been quite aggressive. They've added the likes of Donnarumma, Wijnaldum, and you've got City who are looking at, uh, you know, adding Grealish and Kane to their ranks. I mean, is this a, um, it, I suppose, before any new regulation is handed down, this is the the opportune moment for for those clubs to 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 try and make hay while the sun shines, I suppose. Yeah, I've certainly said similar over the last few weeks. You know, if you look at any any market or any business, and you know across the world, we talk about those that are better placed to take opportunity within a crisis, and and you certainly see some of that here because you know whilst whilst clubs have suffered heavy losses in revenue, whilst we know that the pandemic has been you know catastrophic for a number of clubs. There are other clubs that are, you know, the likes of PSG and Manchester City and some of the bigger clubs in Europe that are not bulletproof, but are more immune to this crisis. And actually, if you look at the relaxing something like FFP regulations, which measures the bottom line, then there is an opportunity for those clubs to say, OK, well, we can actually, you know, roll the dice on things like this a little bit more in confidence that it's not going to be a problem. Um because because of the regulations have been relaxed, so yeah, there's, there's absolutely the argument that some clubs will take opportunity um, within that. And PSG, you know, haven't spent big 
or big in relative terms based on what we're seeing for for a number of years now post Neymar perhaps but then you've got a little bit of spend on um I think the left back was 55 million wasn't it but then a couple of free transfers and as you say you know if Manchester City do land Kane and Grealish then that's another you know 250 million plus outlay for them um and that goes back to what we were saying earlier I just think that you know yes there's opportunity in that crisis for those clubs but those clubs are better placed to take advantage because of what we've seen transpire over the last 10, 15 years or so. And it, it's one of those whereby the, I'm always intrigued to, to see how Manchester, uh, Manchester City would manage to... Um, I mean, we've, we've heard 100 million for Grealish and then um, I suppose in the current market it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility for something like 125, 130 million for Harry Kane, just pulling figures out of air for, for Harry Kane. Um, and when you factor in wages uh, for both players, um, it how how would how would it be possible for them to, to kind of get around those rules? Because without any, I know that City had seen Aguero leave, but that was on a free transfer. Although his wages would have been pretty high, I expect. Um, how is it that clubs have managed to to, to move these things around? I mean, because um, we've seen in Spain that uh, La Liga are now taking a, a more hardline stance, whereas um, Barcelona used to be able to given a, a little bit more rope to. Um, to add to their wage bill, um, it, it was it's about six hundred million a year, I think, um, and that's got to be brought down considerably by something like two hundred million um, in order for them to register players, even Messi, um, for the new season. So um, there's a more hardline approach in the domestic league there in Spain. I mean, how would this play out? Um, do you think with how would it be viewed by UEFA and and the Premier League in terms of uh, th- this kind of spend? I mean. Is it something that they welcome him? Because it's, it seems quite surprising in a pandemic that we're talking about 200 million pound players uh, moving to the same club because um, the market is slightly deflated, I suppose. We've seen that, but um, there are going to be those who, 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 as you've touched on, find opportunity in crisis. How, how will this be viewed by by the Premier League and the UEFA, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on, isn't there, as you say. So if, if we kind of take each of these things in turn, obviously the, the transfer fee and wages are, are two separate um costs and would be you know looked at accordingly under any kind of FFP regulation obviously the transfer fee um, unless it's agreed that it'll be paid in in one lump sum you'd imagine somebody like Daniel Levy might push for that at Spurs um, given how hard he negotiates but normally that transfer fee would be an installment so it's not like you know City would have to part with 100 million on the day for, for Jack Grealish there'd be some kind of negotiations that take place so that's standard practice across the industry nowadays and that kind of offset some of the direct cost on, you know, in terms of when the transfer is signed. Um, and similarly, as you say, with wages, you've got that balance between players coming in and players leaving. And also that's a, a yearly cost as well. Um, and we also know that in terms of how it's recorded in the accounts of clubs, that it's the transfer fee divided by the number of years of the contract as a as an amortisation cost for the player. So you've got kind of little things there that you can use to it's not breaking the regulations but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that spend 100 million and that goes off that's going to hit ffp you know the next day in terms of wage spend just just some of those numbers uh, i mean the most recent figures city's wage spend was 351 million uh, against a turnover of 478 million psg 369 million in wages against 498 million turnover so it's it's still, you know, there or thereabouts on on UEFA scale against that recommended ratio, and of course, as you say, players leaving um, Aguero, etc., 
for City would would offset some of that. So there is a bit of scope in there, as we've said, to, to look at why some of these transfers are perhaps happening now. The other thing which I think is really important that you touched upon is there's a, a third issue there is is the governance of the league. And, and you're quite right, you know, the Spanish example is in the past and, and that's the way they've done things is to almost, that they set their, uh, they give the clubs a budget to spend against their financial situation. And, and that's almost, you know, it's, it's not a salary cap, but it is saying, right, you know, you can only spend so much on, on players in, in this particular season, given where your financial situation is at. We've never seen that in the Premier League. And, and that's, a, that's a governance thing. That's something that's in uh, the contractual arrangements of the league. La Liga state that, they enforce it, the clubs sign up to that mandate. And, and that's the biggest kicker with all of this stuff that we talk about with, with the finances of, of European football. Often it comes down to, to a governance thing. And, and that's part of this around, you know, wider around wage spend, transfer fees, salary caps, it's just never been regulated in, in English football. And then, you know, OK, the market shifted and we saw the Neymar deal, which kind of pushed the, the benchmark of, of what a transfer fee potentially could be and all kinds of crazy release clauses in, in superstar contracts. Um, but there's been very little regulation in that regard to stop spending to that level. And, and as revenue grows and, and costs grow and transfer fees are, are a natural production of that. So, yeah, lots to unpick there, but that's kind of a, how it would fit within FFP and and obviously UEFA are monitoring that from a bottom line point of view and access to the Champions League and Europa League etc. Uh, but the individual leagues are you know have their own governance mechanisms and that's that's what we see play out in the finances sometimes. I mean the the Super League was uh, it, its implementation was a complete disaster. Um, obviously Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Juventus remain espoused to the idea that um, this. This, this will happen. Um, I mean, in its current incarnation, it's, it's not going to happen as a three-team Super League. But further on down the line, you imagine all this legal action is being done um, so as to lay the groundwork for a, uh, another tilted at some some point in the future. Um, I suppose one of the things that was a, a positive looking at the, um, the plans for the Super League, I mean, there wasn't too many of them, but one of the things that you could look at was there was an element in there in terms of addressing competitive balance, um, whereby there would be kind of a stricter monitoring uh, of wages and, and spend so as to try and keep that element of competition among those clubs. Obviously, uh, all you're doing is just ring-fencing the wealth, really, aren't you? Because especially with um, the Super League, as it was going to be a, a closed shop, I mean, it, no one's really losing out there. But um, I think in the past, we've discussed about salary caps. Um, obviously, Liverpool have... Uh, Fenway Sports Group as their owners, um, they'll be well versed in the nuances of, of American sport and, and how, how finance and, and salaries are managed over there. Obviously, through the Boston Red Sox baseball franchise, there are. Um, I don't think there's a hard salary cap in baseball. Um, it, it's there is a cap, but it's it's kind of one of those that it's a luxury tax paid when you breach that. Um, teams like the New York Yankees historically have, have been quite happy to take the, the financial penalties in the chin because they are one of the biggest sporting organisations in the world. Um, and you imagine the implementation of something similar in the Premier League um, would, would simply be a case for, for the likes of Manchester City and Chelsea have just taken a hit on it if they were to spend. But for, for teams like Liverpool um, and uh, Spurs, I suppose, um, possibly Arsenal, um, I, I don't. I still don't know which way the wind blows in Manchester United. I don't know. From one season they seem to be going for it, and the next season it seems to be an exercise and being frugal. Um, I'm not too sure which way they're blowing this summer. With Sancho and Varane, I'm suggesting that they're trying to um, 
bridge the gap between themselves and um, and City more, more than ever. Um, but how would do you think that's something which we could ever see implemented in in the Premier League, Premier League? Some kind of salary cap and governance like we see um, in La Liga, whereby clubs um, are kind of pushed towards spending more within their means, um, or would that affect the, uh, the the product of the Premier League um, and, and and its marketability almost? I mean, because it's it's been seen as a bit of a kind of wild west where the money flows in, and 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 the, it's one of those. I mean, I suppose the Premier League are loath to do anything which which would uh, affect the uh, the balance they have at the moment. Yeah, that that's certainly one of the the, the biggest reasons that the the big clubs will come out and say that, and and the Premier League themselves. So they don't want anything that hurts the brand value of the Premier League. And of course, in turn, what we have to consider within that is it's that brand value of the Premier League that has made the clubs rich within it, because that's the broadcasting money is what's driven this this phenomenal rise in revenue for those clubs. Um, I, I just think on a salary cap, I think there's there's a couple of things. I, I think given the pandemic and, and where we're at now and some of the movements that we're seeing from the Football League and, and movements from Supporters Trust and this fan-led review and, and the backlash of the ESL, as you mentioned, um, from a fan perspective that shut it down as much as anything for some of the English clubs, uh, we might be closer to seeing changes in legislation than, than we've ever seen before. However, the, the cynic in me still, as you quite rightly said, is you you have to get the Premier League to come on board with that. You have, And remember, that's a, a member club that they all get a vote and it's a majority vote. And, and it's almost the case that some of those clubs vote because it's better to be with them than against them. So they know that the, the, the Premier League money is so good that they'll, give a, they'll concede a little bit of ground to the bigger six. And we've seen that with the overseas TV deal and the changes that were made there. And it's almost that case of, well, we're better to be with them than against them. And that's because they're scared to death of the consequence of relegation which is financial hit so there's a wider call there for the industry around a redistribution of broadcasting money if it is that to close the financial gap which means that that kind of risk and reward thing is 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 less of an issue for some clubs but again the american model as you said within that and salary caps the reason why it works so well in america is because well one it was there from the start and it, it was embedded but also because there's no relegation risk so clubs feel safe signing up to an agreement whereby there's there's less financial risk and of course the owner motives to then the the, the objectives of an owner in american sport is to maximize the profit for yourselves and your shareholders or whoever they may be we, we've started to see that creep in a little bit with certainly suggestions at manchester united and, and liverpool as you said with the american owners that they might look to do that in time but, but that's their model and i think that goes against what what English football fans think the club should be run as. It's not a profit maximisation model. It's a make us better on the pitch model. And in turn, that increases the brand value of the club. So, yeah, there's a lot going on within that scope. I, I suppose to answer your question directly on that one and cutting through some of that, under the current governance system of the Premier League and, and how it is, I just don't see a salary cap working or, or being... I don't see a salary cap being implemented because I just think the clubs will, will say no to it. And also at the top end, as, as we've just seen with some of those wages figures and to throw Liverpool into the mix, £352 million wages against £490 million turnover. Of course, this is pre-COVID for, for 2020. Um, but those clubs are spending within their means. That's what they'll argue. The wages are not in excess of turnover. So, you know, why, why do they want to implement a salary cap when they're doing just fine? And I think that comes down to this. Do we think that 
football clubs and leagues should be looking out for the, the greater good and, and each other and as a collective, which I think they should, or are they voting in their own self-interest, which I think they are. Um, I don't know how you change it unless you rip, rip the whole governance structure up and almost you know start again with it. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Touching on wages, I mean, I think Liverpool spend, I think it's um, about 65% um, kind of wages to turnover is is about where they sit. And, and they've, they that's gone up. I mean, I think their wage bill has risen uh, 95% since 2015. Um, but if, I think if you look across all the big big clubs, that's just the way football has gone. But revenues have also bloomed during that time. So I suppose you have to take one with the other. Um, but that... Uh, Wages uh, growth has been outstripping revenue um, for some time now at Liverpool uh, for the past three three or four seasons, maybe. Um, so they're coming to a point now whereby they are having to engage. Um, I mean, they've just signed Trent Alexander-Arnold on a new long-term deal. Um, they're going to have to engage Fabinho, Alison Becker. There's talk about Virgil van Dijk, Jordan Henderson, Mo Salah, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino. All these people are, are key cogs of this, this Liverpool team that... Um, and they're all getting older. I mean, and, and part of the FSG way previously with, with the Boston Red Sox, albeit I'm loath to make too many strong comparisons between what they do with the football and the baseball, um, has been uh, don't spend too much of your budget on um, older players because that's where ultimately the the higher wages are spent on all the more experienced players. Um, but for Liverpool, do you think that's going to be a concern moving forward that these new, I mean, Alexander-Arnold's wages, for instance, are going to be a big bump on what he was on previously. Um, and you'd imagine in most cases, bar for possibly Jordan Henderson, you would be seeing an increase in wages because none of these players are um, going to be of the age where it's kind of a retirement home for them or anything like that. It's um, They are still players who hold um, real value, so they'll want to see that replicated in their wage packets. Do you think that that's going to be a concern moving forward um, for Liverpool as that gap continues to to close? I mean, because ultimately um, we're expecting fairly poor results in the next set of um, uh, accounts, albeit that won't include these new contract renewals um, th- because they'll fall into the uh, the financial year for May 2022, I imagine. Um, but it I suppose it, it's one of those things that Liverpool are continuously having to try and um, just boost up their revenue streams uh, every single year by signing bigger deals, better deals, in order to kind of meet this. I mean, because there's no guarantee of Champions League football every year. And I think we saw the the kind of the, the relief was, was evident um, when they made the Champions League this year because that provides them with a cushion because it would have been interesting to see how they approach these contract renewals and their their summer business um, if they were faced with the Europa League or even the the Europa Conference League because that was something which was mooted at one stage. Um, Do you think this is going to be a concern for them moving forward because that gap continues to close and and with one eye on on what FFP might look like in the future? I mean, they look like a club which is always going to... be, be fairly safe when it comes to not breaching FFP rules. I mean, I imagine their fans are probably, uh, Liverpool fans are probably going to uh, um, see them spend a bit more. But um, do, do you think that gap which is closing is something to be concerned about? Yeah, they'll, they'll be concerned. You know, I said this at the start that the bigger clubs are, are more immune, but they're not completely immune. So COVID is, has obviously been a huge part of this. But I mean, first of all, Liverpool FFP-wise, not a problem, not certainly looking at the numbers. So, you know, if you look at, the again, the, the 2020 accounts, £40 million loss, we'd expect that to get worse 
or take a dip for a couple of seasons, as you say. But that was before that, you're looking at £33 million profit, £106 million profit and £39 million profit for the three years prior. So I don't think there's any issue for me with Liverpool and FFP. I think the wages is, is obviously important, as you said. Um, wages to turnover ratio in 2020 of 72%. But you're right, that was hovering around 57 58% for the three years prior. So there is that increase. And I think what one thing you're looking at here, and, and you're right, that the Champions League is is always a must for these clubs within that because they almost, you know, they almost budget to compete in that competition because they know that the chances of them not getting in, especially going back to what we were talking about earlier, albeit, you know, barring a sporting disaster, Liverpool should finish in that top four with, with that squad. Um, and they've been able to do that. The, the strategy moving forward, <clears throat> as you say, for me, should be on that long term. So the players that are, OK, if you've got to renegotiate some of those contracts for the, the superstars and, and they are, relatively speaking, getting older, you know, in, in terms of their career, you should be be factoring that in. That should have been factored in, you know, almost two or three years prior to now. And and I'm sure that, you know, if you look at the way the, the Boston Red Sox, as you say, if you look at that model, it would make sense that you would think that the owners have been talking about this for a while. And obviously then you've got, your superstars that are still relatively young, like Trent Alexander-Arnold, that you know that you need to to give a good offer to, so that they remain at the club, and and you've got that balance, but you've got to that's got to be the strategy for a three, four, five year plan, and and I know that the fan rhetoric, as we say, is always well, we need to spend in the, the transfer market, and if you look at this season, you know, Liverpool have been pretty quiet in in this window in particular, and that's not unusual for for a number of clubs. Obviously, Van Dijk coming back is is almost like a new signing. Um, but th- there is a point where you go, okay, so we've we've got to do something with this squad now. Um, but it should be on a you know a three to five year plan, and that's where you can start to factor in your wages and and the peaks and the troughs and and what's happening coming out of the pandemic. Uh, but it it does come down to sporting performance, doesn't it? I think that's what we we come back to is. Okay, Liverpool are you know never going to get relegated from the Premier League at the minute. Just not going to happen. But they could miss out on the Champions League, and that is you know for those clubs that is a huge huge factor if they if that happens because the whole model is geared around Champions League. And then if you look at what clubs are trying to do now, and you said it yourself is okay, you can redevelop your stadium or you can look to build a new stadium. And we've seen Anfield expanding capacity in recent years. But the only other way you grow revenue is through the commercial uh, avenue. And that's where the American owners have been really savvy in, in the football clubs that they've operated in, is they know that market and, and that's how they work. And, and at the minute, there's untapped growth in that commercial market because there's no legislation on how much you can earn from a commercial contract. I mean, I think rights ownership is, is something which is going to um, run into the into the future. I mean, they brought in Redbird Capital Partners to Jerry Cardinal, the, the founder there, someone with a keen interest in that. But that's something we'll touch on um, at a later date, I, I, I'm sure. But just to circle back and finish, um, FFP, I mean, we, we discussed at the top whether it, or not it was fit for purpose and and what UEFA might do moving forward um, as they try and implement these changes. Obviously, the, the pandemic has, um, has expedited the need for this. Um, and also, um, the, the, the kind of failed plot of the ESL has, has, has kind of seen all this move forward at a pace. Do you, do you think, what do you think 
kind of um, FFP rules will look like in the next five years? Do you think it'd be roughly broadly similar? Uh, and, and what do you think um, would be kind of appropriate checks and balances for uh, for the modern game? Because it's it, it's impossible to put the hammer down on some of these clubs and just say you must all operate on the same level playing field because it just won't get that buy-in. Um, I suppose you you've got to placate the issues of um, of the biggest clubs as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in terms of what it might look like, I think you, you're probably right, Dave. I think um, we might not see too many changes to it um, in terms of what it is. And, and that's not to say whether that's good, bad or indifferent. I just think that that's the way it, it will play out. We might see some tweaks. You, you mentioned commercial naming rights and things like that. And we've seen owner investment be a big issue with PSG and Man City with FFP. So you, you might see some movement there but I think things like the break-even principle and and you know recommended wages to turnovers ratios will remain um but I think what could be done is you could still do a lot more so you know I I, I'm always an advocate of a more kind of holistic approach to this And, and what I mean by that is you know almost like a bringing more variables into the mix in terms of OK, so if, if a club, not just the bottom line, but but what's the revenue trend looking like? What's the cost trend looking like, as we've said? Where, where, what are the levels of debt and where are those levels of debt from? You know, is it from the owner? Is it from, you know, who else do you owe money to? What's your liabilities? What's the equity position? Couple that with some sporting metrics about whether that's brand value or, you know, how the clubs are looking to grow in the future. And I think you, you could do some, you know, there's a lot of statisticians out there that could do some really good modelling with this sort of stuff. And almost like a kind of sustainability index score, you know, a financial sustainability index for a football club and, and use that as the marker. And also, I suppose one thing that I think could be really good that we've perhaps not done in the past is we're quick to hand out financial penalties for when clubs have been in the wrong and we're quick to punish them with fines or points deductions what about flipping that the other way and actually rewarding good financial sustainability? So if you can perform against these financial metrics and you run your business in inverted commas in in a sustainable way, actually, should we be carving up some of the prize money pot to say we'll give that to as a reward mechanism for clubs that are doing well? And and that might incentivize everybody to try and do it their own, do it on their own and become financially sustainable, which is a good thing. But they also know there's the incentive of a little bit more of the pot a good financial performance rather than just a, a you know a punishment mechanism for poor financial performance because because they've um, they've been left um with some egg on the face really haven't they in the past um few years i mean most recently obviously the 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 asl um drama has has, has been uh, a real kind of slap in the face for them uh, they'll see the getting the, the nine clubs back um from the 12 as, as a win um but previously the the when they've tried to implement FFP, um, they've been unsuccessful in doing so. When they've tried to really come down hard on it, um, it's been overturned by Cass and uh, in, in City's case. Um, I suppose they'll be looking for some um, security that allows them to to kind of hold power over that. Um, but the problem being for them at the moment is their hand has never really been weaker, has it, in terms of the uh, <laughs> the, the, the the dynamics of, of European football? Yeah, well, we haven't labeled the power dynamic in this chat yet have we but it, it's there and, and it's a huge factor so you know you look at as you say the the two biggest movements in recent times have been the man city verdict um with with uefa and and the challenge of the esl clubs and and again you know I, 
let, let's be honest, the ESL was a direct challenger to the Champions League. So, you know, irrespective of the fact that, OK, we can look at the wider impact it might have had on the balance of the European leagues and UEFA were very strong on that rhetoric. Let, let's be honest, they were more annoyed about that challenge because it directly competes with their flagship competition, which in turn drives their revenues. That, that's the biggest burner for UEFA alongside the European Championship. So, you know, you've got that power dynamic there. And at the minute, UEFA still hold that power relatively because the clubs, as you say, or apart from the three that are still you know, trying to, to challenge them, the other clubs have, have kind of fell back in line with the Champions League. And also, let's not forget that a couple of days after that ESL fallout, there was the, the changes to the Champions League format were for 2024 were voted in, which means more games, uh, more money for the clubs and more chance of those big clubs getting through to the, the knockout stages, which is what UEFA obviously want as well. So, yeah, you can't ignore that power dynamic. Um, I, I think we'll see a European Super League come around again, as you said at the, at the start. I don't think it's gone away. Um, but And the clubs know that they can, you know, in the Man City case, as, as you said, they've got some confidence now that if they want to, they can challenge some of this stuff from UEFA. And that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the next uh, three to four years or so. But given the Champions League revamp for now and, and that starting in 2024, we might, you know, see the next two or three years as, as moving towards that. And then potentially, you know, what comes next after that a couple of years down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's um, we're in very strange times uh, in football. Um, we were hoping that this this current campaign will um, will go off without a hitch, uh, and we'll be able to see full crowds and, and everything will be be hunky dory for the next time um, reporting periods come in. But uh, it would be probably foolish to, to second guess any of this at this stage. But um, it's an issue which is going to run and run anyway. But Dan, thanks very much for uh, providing your insights uh, into this. It's, I know it's a topic which uh, you've covered at length, and I know we've spoken previously on it. It's been great to have you back on the show, um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to linking up when, uh, when when this story continues to play out in the future. Um, well, thanks very much, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we will see you again soon. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.